It's the night of November 28th, 1717. Guadeloupe Town, a French port and sugar colony in the Caribbean, is under siege. From the harbor, three pirate ships pummel the settlement with relentless cannon fire. Their approach was swift and without warning, giving the town no time to react. The attack is devastating. The red-hot cannons ignite the timber frame buildings and thatched roofs instantly, like a match to hay. The shops and homes that make up this little port are quickly consumed by flames. The villagers hopelessly try to battle the blazes and salvage their belongings. A stockpile of liquor in the tavern explodes. Bystanders are knocked over by the blast. One man is burnt alive, and there's no retaliation against the pirates. They have already crippled and plundered the other ships in the harbor. The town is completely defenseless. The pirate ship that leads the attack is Queen Anne's Revenge. Standing on her deck, his dark features illuminated by the extraordinary blaze ashore, is the notorious pirate captain, Blackbeard. The raid is brazen and bold, far beyond the scope of most ordinary pirates. But Blackbeard is no ordinary pirate. The attack is a statement of how far he will go to disrupt and destroy trade. And this is only the beginning. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Blackbeard. Of all the pirates of the Golden Age, he is by far the most notorious. Over the 300 years since his death, Blackbeard has captured the imaginations of countless people. He is the man whose headless body swam around his ship, the man who lit fuses in his beard before he ruthlessly raided merchant vessels. The scourge of the Americas, his reign of terror is unmatched. Or so the story goes. Most of the Golden Age pirates are steeped in legend, and none more so than Blackbeard. His life has become a fusion of fact and myth, and separating the two grows harder as time goes on. Who is Blackbeard the pirate? Before his rise to power, he was a sailor, known as Edward Thatch. It's winter of 1716 when Thatch first enters the historical record. He is sailing with Captain Benjamin Hornigold, the founding father of the pirate haven of Nassau in the Bahamas. But he's not just a crew member aboard Hornigold's ship, the powerful 30-gun vessel, the Ranger. Thatch is given his own command, a small 10-gun sloop with a crew of 70 men. Some historians claim Thatch is Hornigold's top lieutenant. Others suggest he's his protege, mentored by the older pirate. Some believe they were equals and partners. The exact date Edward Thatch joins Hornigold's crew is unknown. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. He doesn't emerge in the pirate record until 1716, at which point he's just been given command of a prize vessel by Benjamin Hornigold. He's been serving with Hornigold for a sufficient amount of time prior to that moment that he's proven himself and is trusted by Hornigold to be given this level of authority. But certainly sometime in 1715 and 1716, the two must have been working together and he would have been part of Hornigold's crew and experiencing many of the events that we know Hornigold's crew experienced and participated in prior to him emerging into the record. So is Hornigold responsible for the rise of the fiercest pirate to terrorize the Americas? According to Captain Charles Johnson's 1724 book, The General History of Pirates, the answer is yes. But then again, you have to take this contemporary source with a large pinch of salt. The General History of the Pirates, which was published while some of these pirates were still alive in the immediate aftermath of this outbreak, published in London. And if you read it, it's sort of the source book for all of your pop culture accounts of these pirates. What we think Blackbeard was like and what we think Black Sam Bellamy was and Mary Reed and Anne Bonny and Steve Bonnet, they all come from this book. And the book is a funny combination of precisely accurate stuff drawn from official records that somehow the author of this book had access to and things that are completely made up. So it's a, this frustrating amalgam of solid fact and total fantasy. Early pirate chronicles like Johnson's tend to fill in the gaps with their own imagination. 
may also change parts of the story from edition to edition. Some historians suggest Johnson may have conflated elements of Samuel Bellamy with Edward Thatch to construct a picture of Hornigold as Thatch's mentor. This makes nailing down the historical figure of Edward Thatch tricky. Clearly, he was terrifying, appearing larger than life. He was called the Great Devil by the Spanish. Blackbeard himself even reportedly claimed to have been sent from hell. So was Thatch really the spawn of Satan? Or are his origins less supernatural? Well, his early life mostly remains a mystery for one obvious reason. With all of the pirates of the Golden Age, we rarely know a great deal about their lives before they entered piracy. And part of the reason for that is class. Many of them were ordinary people who, in that time period, left very little documentary records behind after themselves. Somebody born in the late 1600s, there might be a record of their birth and of their marriage and of their death, if you're fortunate and the records haven't been lost. And then in any legal disputes they might have become involved in, you know, or, or legal engagements, wills, crimes, and so on. Other than that, often the records are quite mute. What we do know about Thatch is either inferred or taken from various reports, newspapers, and depositions. It's speculated that he was born in the 1680s, but the exact location is disputed. Charles Johnson suggests two possible places of birth. He links Thatch to the city of Bristol in the UK, as well as Jamaica. Angus Constam is the author of Blackbeard, America's most notorious pirate. He said Edward Thatch was born in Jamaica and was from a boy bred to the sea. So you get this idea that he knows what he's talking about. But by the time he does the next edition, a few months later, in 1724, he says he was a Bristol man born, but sailed for some time out of Jamaica. I went to Bristol trying to solve this, went to the Bristol Records Office, looked through all the surviving records that were there, property records and the like, and there was indeed a thatch from nearby Gloucester who'd rented a house there, who could have been a relative. There were thatches in the region. Contemporary pirate historians continue to try to untangle Edward Thatch's origins presented in Johnson's book. Something of a breakthrough occurred when some biographical records were recently unearthed. Another scholar, Bayless Brooks, was able to locate various vital records in Jamaica and has made a pretty good case for Thatch having been indeed from a Bristol family, but having been born in Jamaica himself from, you know, either Gloucestershire or Bristol family members. Bayless Brooks' 2016 research suggests Edward Thatch may have come from a wealthy plantation-owning family in Santiago de la Vega renamed Spanish Town, in Jamaica. This affluent settlement was home to the high society of the island. Here, the Thatches would have rubbed shoulders with the Jamaican colonial elite. If young Edward, unlike his contemporaries Sam Bellamy or Charles Vane, was the son of a gentleman, he was likely well-educated. Johnson also places Thatch, bred to the sea, at various points in the Royal Navy and as a privateer. Are these baseless claims made by Johnson? Or are there nuggets of truth to them? There are references of some of the victims of Blackbeard's later piracy who say that they recognized a new thatch, that he used to come to Philadelphia and other places as a mate on a merchant vessel. So he was almost certainly a privateer or perhaps serving in the Navy during the War of Spanish Secession. Brooks's research places Edward Thatch as a petty officer aboard the warship the HMS Windsor, 
flagship of the West Indian fleet in 1706, at the outbreak of war with Spain and France. During his military service, Thatch would have learned vital maritime skills and navigational knowledge, the foundations of later piratical ventures. Like many sailors, it's easy to imagine Thatch later sought to profit from these skills, becoming a privateer, an 18th century security contractor commissioned to attack foreign shipping. By 1714, the war is over, but as peace came to Europe and the colonies, naval sailors are made redundant and privateering contracts are torn up. What is a man like Thatch to do? It might seem logical for him to return home to Jamaica, to his family's sugar plantation, but he doesn't. It seems upon the death of his father in 1707, Edward Thatch of Spanish Town, Jamaica, bequeathed his entire estate to his stepmother and siblings. So, either through circumstance or desire, the war veteran and battle-hardened sailor is now committed to a life at sea. Thatch chooses a life of piracy, though we can only guess at his reasons. Contemporary writer Charles Leslie seems to have met the surviving Thatches in Jamaica in the 1730s, some time after Edward's death. Finding them pleasant and creditable, he must have been shocked by their association with the notorious pirate Blackbeard. Whatever his motivations, in 1716, Edward Thatch finds himself as part of Hornigold's pirate crew. And until September 1717, Hornigold and Thatch pillage and plunder the Caribbean together. But for Thatch to be given command of a sloop under Hornigold is a testament to Hornigold's trust in Thatch and Thatch's skills as a sailor, a leader, and as a pirate. It's September 1717, on the pirate haven of Nassau. The docks are abuzz with pirates unloading their booty. Thatch and Hornigold made port here a few days ago. The crew is reaping the benefits of months of plundering. They indulge in drinking, feasting, gambling, and sleeping with sex workers. But as they do, a ship slowly makes its way into the harbor. A vessel no one has seen before. Limping through the crystal blue water is a purpose-built sloop of war, scarred by battle damage. Watchful pirates track the ship, like a dog's eyes tracking a stake. The question on everybody's tongue, who are these pirates? The answer comes in the form of a ragged sailor charging off the ship. He is dirty and his clothes are stained with blood. He says they've been in a lethal fight with a Spanish warship. Dozens of men are dead and the captain is badly injured. Medical attention is needed and a doctor is brought aboard to examine the injured. The dead are disposed of. It's a scene many on Nassau are familiar with. The life of a pirate is a dangerous and often short-lived existence, which is why most pirates will go out of their way to avoid tangling with warships. Edward Thatch sits in a tavern near the docks. He sips ale with his captain, Benjamin Hornigold, another crewman, playing liar's dice Thatch is a formidable presence. He is a tall, trim, commanding man with long black hair and a wild, jet-black beard. As the men 
play their game. A group of pirates rush in with news of this damaged sloop that foolishly fought a Spanish warship. The captain, an unknown man named Steed Bonnet, apparently went into battle willingly, crippling his ship and killing many of his men. Thatch thinks Bonnet must be a madman. Little does he know it's not madness but inexperience behind Bonnet's actions. What really interests Thatch, however, is talk that Bonnet's crew are unhappy with their reckless captain. Thatch walks down to the harbor and investigates the ship. It's a 10-gun, purpose-built sloop of war with the name Revenge splashed on its stern. Thatch knows with the right captain, it could be a powerful vessel. He also knows he has achieved all he can under Hornigold's command. Until this point, Thatch has operated with restraint, obeying Hornigold's orders not to attack British vessels. But Thatch, like his friend Bellamy, is a new breed of pirate, an enemy of all nations, not loyal to the crown like Hornigold. As a former Navy officer, he's experienced the brutality and exploitation firsthand. Thatch has little love for Britain. He also recently learned of Bellamy's untimely death in a violent storm back in April. Bellamy's crew have been arrested and now await the gallows. Thatch is itching to go after the British colonies and their merchant ships. For Thatch to make a name for himself, he needs to step out of Hornigold's shadow. And the revenge, in addition to his ten-gun sloop, gives him the firepower he needs. Thatch arranges to meet with the wounded captain. It's night when Thatch boards the Revenge. Repairs are slowly underway. He enters the captain's cabin. Oil lamps bathe the room in amber light. Thatch notices the packed shelves of leather-bound books. Steed Bonnet is not what Thatch expects. This 29-year-old, rosy-cheeked, blonde man lies on the bed, resting his injuries. He wears a silk stocking, a fine linen shirt, and is wrapped in a luxurious dressing gown. His bandages are blood-soaked. There's uncertainty if he'll recover, and if so, it'll take time. Nevertheless, there is no chance of him pirating anytime soon. Bonnet, Thatch realizes, is a landlubber, a gentleman. In many ways, he and Thatch are alike, both coming from a well-off background and possessing an education. But Bonnet is no pirate at all. He lacks the maritime skills and experience Thatch has. It's no wonder the crew is frustrated with Bonnet. He wanted to enter piracy, but he was the scion of a major slave plantation-owning family in Barbados. And for some reason, had suddenly decided to abandon all that. He had built his own, in quotes, privateering vessel, like financed its construction, and hired a crew, and gone off privateering and immediately entered piracy instead. And had gotten in some kind of entanglement with a Spanish warship and had barely gotten away and had been injured. So he's arrived. He doesn't know anything about sailing or being a pirate, but actually owns the vessel. And the pirates are trying to figure out essentially what to do with this guy who wants to join them, but is a fish out of water. What comes out of it is that 
Blackbeard is placed in control of this purpose-built sloop with Steed Bonnet on board as well, but more or less kind of confined to his cabin where he has a large library of books and is reported to be sort of wandering around his dressing gown. Thatch proposes that Bonnet cedes command of the revenge to him. He knows if the crew's unhappiness grows further, they'll depose Bonnet anyway. No doubt Bonnet has had the same thought. Thatch wants to slot himself into a command position before the crew turns. Thatch tells Bonnet he can stay on board and retain the captain's cabin until he's well, and maybe learn a thing or two about proper pirating. When he's recovered, they can continue to sail together. But Thatch is no fool. His long game is to take full control of Bonnet's ship and crew. Bonnet, lying there wounded, is in no position to argue. This is his best chance to retain his ship and crew. The last thing he wants is to be stranded on Nassau, penniless, shipless, and critically ill. He agrees and surrenders command of the revenge. Thatch shakes Bonnet's soft, uncalloused hand. With his new command secured, he breaks the news to his aging mentor. Hornigold doesn't put up a fight. He knows Thatch is ready. With the refit underway on the revenge, two more guns are added to the ten it already possesses. The crew look to their new interim captain, Edward Thatch, with excitement. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's September 29th, 1717, off the Capes of Virginia. The Revenge, in addition to Thatch's smaller sloop that he commanded under Hornigold, takes to the open seas. The ship's lookout spots a merchant vessel in the distance. It's the 40-ton sloop, Betty. Blackbeard makes his debut. He emerges onto the deck to survey the target through his spyglass. Jeremy Moss is the author of The Life and Trials of the Gentleman Pirate, Steed Bonnet. So as they prepared themselves for the engagement, Blackbeard probably approached the deck from his room among the officers' quarters. It would have been the first time that Bonnet would have seen him in action. And Blackbeard, like other pirates, probably the best at this, knew that he had to terrorize his prize in order to more easily take it. And Blackbeard is the very image of terror. He wears three braces of pistols, hanging in holsters like bandoliers. A cutlass is at his side. 
his wild beard consumed much of his face and hangs down to his waist. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. Blackbeard was all about the theater of piracy. Very rash, very flamboyant in that way, growing out his hair, his long black beard. And what people need to understand about that, of how significant it was that he did that, is because it went against every societal rule of the time. It was a massive amount of social deviance to do this because during the 18th century, there was a big movement, especially amongst men, educated men, and Blackbeard was educated, to really fit into what's called polite society. And one of the ways you really showed that you were a polite person, a gentleman, a respectable person was being clean shaven and either having short hair or hair tied back in a very neat manner. So Blackbeard going the exact opposite of this isn't just simply a way to distinguish himself and frighten people. It's also a direct attack against society, a direct mockery against society. And it worked. Blackbeard eyeing the Betty gives the order to attack. Cannons fire over Betty's bow, a warning to stop or be sunk. Surrender is almost immediate and the revenge comes alongside. Passengers tremble in fear as dozens of crazed pirates rush aboard, shouting and swinging cutlasses and firing pistols into the air. But none terrify the passengers, like Blackbeard. A pistol is in one hand, a cutlass in the other. His wild eyes look demonic behind a cloud of smoke as fuses and candles sparkle from under his hat and beard, making it look like his hair is on fire. It is Captain Johnson who cemented Blackbeard as this terrifying figure we've known for 300 years. He describes Blackbeard as a frightful meteor that frightened America more than any comet that has appeared. He wore a sling with three brace of pistols, stuck lighted matches under his hat, his eyes naturally looking fierce and wild. This is all part of Blackbeard theatrics. People would generally surrender very, very quickly because Blackbeard, he had his distinctive look, which immediately intimidated people, but he also would put lit candles into his beard so smoke would rise from him, making it look like he just arrived from the depths of hell. And that smoke probably gave Blackbeard kind of a supernatural presence. And he already had these eyes that were naturally fierce and wild. So he was altogether kind of this figure that you would think of being hellbent, maybe, right? So he's got these big, deep, dark, open eyes, the smoke that's surrounding him. To what extent did Blackbeard actually look like the depiction Johnson gives is debated. Did Johnson deploy his notorious artistic license to Blackbeard? Some think so. He must have looked colorful. That's all part of the whole persona because as a pirate, what you want is the enemy to give up without a fight, but probably not necessarily as colorful as Captain Johnson makes out, but that helps made him a bestseller. However he looked, the effect is devastating. One witness says Blackbeard made altogether such a figure that imagination cannot form an idea of a fury from hell to look more frightful. The Betty is raided of its Madeira wine and whatever treasure the pirates can find. Now, Blackbeard must decide what to do with the ship. If he lets the Betty go, they might warn the Navy of his presence. We well, can't have that. Instead, the passengers are forced aboard the Revenge, and Blackbeard's quartermaster, William Howard, drills holes into the hull of the Betty and sinks her. 
It's October 1717. Blackbeard is only weeks into his new command, and his reign of terror is unlike anything seen before. The Revenge is a sleek and powerful vessel, and the crew revere their new captain as Blackbeard leads them into repeated success. Merchant ship after merchant ship falls prey to Blackbeard. With a vengeance, he attacks vessels destined for Philadelphia from Madeira, Liverpool, and London, taking jewelry, coins, rum, wine, and various provisions. But Blackbeard's terror goes further than most. He vandalizes ships and destroys property with glee. Even unwanted cargo is ruined. One helpless merchant watches as a thousand pounds of his personal belongings are dumped into the sea by the howling and laughing pirates. Blackbeard is sending a message to the wealthy merchants. He wants to hit them where it hurts. Their wallets. Despite the destruction, violence and kidnapping, incredibly, Blackbeard's body count is still at zero. Blackbeard was quite impulsive and he was very rash in a lot of decision making. He would kind of go in and fight and negotiate later. However, that said, he wasn't violent. He had his own principles as well. He knew that pirates had their survival is what's really important. So he told his men, don't go into these fights killing people, go in and scare them so we can get as much stuff in and out as possible. It may come as a surprise, but many Golden Age pirates were not quite as murderous as their reputations suggest. Even the terrible Blackbeard. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. The fact that so few of them did the ultimate deed and killed the people they ransacked, it's interesting. If they wanted to maraud and they wanted to leave a trail of blood in the ocean, These pirates could have done it. They could have killed hundreds, thousands of people, perhaps, but they didn't. I absolutely think, although we don't have proof of this in their own words, I have no doubt that these pirates were smart enough to know that they started killing 20 or 30 or 40 hostages at at each taking of a merchant ship, that the entire force of Her Majesty's Navy, the Royal Navy, would have hunted them down and piracy would have ended much sooner than it did. After two weeks, Blackbeard has attacked 15 ships. Some of the vessels are added to his fleet, building his flotilla. In his wake, he leaves a trail of countless traumatized travelers and captains. Reports begin to flood into the British colonies of North America. The destruction of human life is not his goal. Attacking wealth is... And these attacks are big news for the papers. The people in the colonies, and certainly back in Great Britain, knew what pirates were all about, knew about these pirate codes, some of which were reproduced in newspapers. They could read accounts of pirates. There were some plays that were made about pirates, and there were an increasing number of books or parts of books that would talk about piracy. The editors of these newspapers were always looking for interesting things There were quite a few stories about pirate attacks, both successful ones and failed ones, and then increasing stories about hangings and other things related to pirates. Up until this point, pirate antics are reported as unfortunate robberies, not as sensational crimes committed by merciless monsters. Back in July, 
the Boston Newsletter reported two attacks by Hornigold, Blackbeard's supposed mentor, with a certain level of neutrality. His rating of 120 barrels of flour and gallons of rum were reported as little more than a nuisance. But the arrival of Blackbeard seems to provoke a serious shift in the media. On November 4th, 1717, the Boston Newsletter reports Blackbeard very barbarously used Mr. Joseph Richardson, merchant of the Sea Nymph. Another report says sailors were met with the most barbarous inhuman treatment. The exact details of Blackbeard's barbarity are unclear. Physical violence? Destruction of goods? What is it about Blackbeard's raids that have sparked this sudden change in tone in the papers? Possibly it's a sales tactic, selling newspapers by peddling sensational events. It may also be a result of political pressure. After all, John Campbell, the owner of the Boston Newsletter, knew his merchant friends were being targeted by pirates. In any case, the press turned Blackbeard into a celebrity almost overnight. He quickly gains notoriety and a reputation as the most terrible pirate on the water. The threat of death and violence at the hand of Blackbeard and the almost certain destruction of property has merchant ships on edge. So are Blackbeard's attacks on the North American colonies strategic? Did he want to make such an impression? Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Boston, at this time, is the epicenter for colonial communication. If Blackbeard wants to make the world aware of his vengeance against New England, he has chosen the perfect place. Blackbeard is held up in the American mind the world's mind. He's probably the most famous pirate right next to Captain William Kidd. And Blackbeard, what we know about him from the actual record is we have only one real example of him being violent towards anybody on board a ship that he had captured. Blackbeard, the one who Charles Johnson in the general history of pirates paints as this meteor that shot through the sky, but in the effect shot through the heart of English and American culture in the 17 teens, which he did because even at the time, the myth of Blackbeard somehow became greater than the man himself in part, I think, because of the name. What a great name, Blackbeard. It just is awesome. But in terms of real violence, we don't have a lot of evidence that he was violent at all. And it was his gruesome or fearsome reputation that helped him achieve his level of fame, even while he was still a pirate. Blackbeard knows fear is his greatest weapon, and he deploys it with incredible results. 
he and his crewmen had bandoliers of grenades and weapons and were dressing intentionally in the various finery and clothing of the wealthy passengers they captured like war trophies. You know, it looked like something like one of these Mad Max movies when these guys are coming. There are people wearing women's hats and gentlemen's wigs and cutlasses and grenades and fancy silks, you know, all in this hodgepodge, the apocalypse has come and now we're coming for you sort of fashion. But it's not just the look of Blackbeard and his crew that strikes fear into the hearts of their victims. By now, Blackbeard knows merchant ships tremble at the sight of the Jolly Roger in all its varieties. And the Revenge's flag is just as theatrical as Blackbeard. Against a black backdrop, a white skeleton toasts to the devil with one hand and stabs a heart with a spear with the other. Dr. Manishag Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. Written accounts were really fascinated by that idea of the black pirate flag, while at the same time, not all pirates used it at all. So it's like one of the things that's available in a pirate's arsenal if you're trying to frighten your prey into compliance, is you can run up. They're not always black. Sometimes they're red. Sometimes they're white or other colors. They don't always have the skull and crossbones. Actually, there's a lot of different designs they might have. But there's a set of icons that you can put on a flag that sort of says, like, we're scary people. (laughs) Don't resist us. Ironically, if fear is Blackbeard's greatest weapon, then the press is providing the ammunition. The more they exaggerate, the more he is feared. The more ships surrender to him, the more his power and reputation increases. It's November 17th, 1717. Just two days after the hanging of Bellamy's crew in Boston, the Revenge leads the pirate armada south after a series of successful raids on the eastern seaboard. Blackbeard's command is cemented aboard the Revenge. Steed Bonnet the man whose ship and crew he has control over, isn't phased. Bonnet is eccentric. He has taken to wandering the ship in his dressing gown and reads from his extensive library, as if on a pleasure cruise. Perhaps he's just pleased to be in the company of real pirates. He is living out his fantasy of swashbuckling adventures. But for how long? Bonnet isn't merely a tourist spectating while Blackbeard and the crew plunder and raid ships. Blackbeard is giving Bonnet a masterclass in piracy, skills he's going to need in the near future. While en route to the Caribbean, Blackbeard's eyes appealed for a prize capture. It's time to take things up a notch. He wants an even more formidable vessel, one that can be his flagship. East of Martinique, Blackbeard's lookout, perched in the crow's nest, spots a French slave ship, La Concorde. From the bow, Blackbeard surveys the vessel through his spyglass. It's a 200-plus ton vessel armed with 14 guns. He licks his cracked lips and grins. She's a powerful vessel, but he's noted her crew is scarce. She's undermanned. Blackbeard is about to acquire the queen of pirate flagships. Seizing the opportunity, the black flags unfurl and Blackbeard's sloops point straight at La Concorde. The Revenge fires a volley of warning shots. The pirates quickly gain on the French slave ship. Blackbeard readies the crew for battle, 
But despite boasting serious firepower, the French don't retaliate. La Concorde's cannons aren't even deployed. Blackbeard's hunch was correct. An outbreak of scurvy and dysentery has decimated the French crew. Only 23 men are fit enough to fight. They're no match for Blackbeard's numbers. Escape is impossible. La Concorde lumbers slowly through the water. Not only is she short of crew, she's weighed down by her human cargo. There are 450 enslaved people chained in the hold. Blackbeard sees the white flag. The French have surrendered. Captain Pierre Dosset prays for the lives of his crew as the pirates flood the deck of his ship, seizing control. Dosset has heard countless stories of pirate brutality. La Concorde is the ideal vessel to serve as Blackbeard's flagship. With it, he has the firepower to rival any warship in the region. But what is Blackbeard to do with the 450 humans chained below deck? Because they were capturing this vessel as it was arriving from Africa, it meant that there were hundreds of enslaved people as the cargo below. And this raises an ambiguous, interesting facet of the Golden Age pirates that's very intriguing and frustrating for researchers, is their stance towards people of African descent and slavery itself. Right. There's a group of people who see themselves as fighting against an exploitative system who are operating in the middle of these horrific slave plantation islands, the sugar plantations. It's an absolutely horrific and staggeringly profitable economy occurring all around them based on enormous inequality and servitude. And we know Blackbeard and many of the other pirates accepted people of African descent as fellow crewmen, as fellow pirates, and often even as leaders and captains of vessels. The possibility of being accepted and treated as a full human within pirate circles was very much there. And as a result of that, this was one of the most destabilizing things that this pirate outbreak represented to the colonies around them because word got out among escaped slave communities trying to avoid recapture. But suddenly there was hope if you could get to the Bahamas or join the pirates, there would be a possibility of a wider zone of freedom and perhaps even a chance at sort of revenge against the other systems. And Blackbeard later in his career, the people in his pirate crew who he kept closest to him were people of African descent. A large proportion of his pirate crew, you know, as much as a third of it or even half at different times was of African descent. This is not to say, however, that Blackbeard was a liberator of the enslaved. More likely, he is motivated by self-interest, like all pirates. A diverse crew brings diverse skills. But at the same time, what happens when he captures La Concorde? What happens to the 455 or so enslaved people in the hold newly arriving from the slave forts of Africa? And the answer is that the vast majority of them were basically given back to the French captain to keep and to be ferried by smaller vessels later by this captain to be sold back into slavery. What is going on with that? Some of the enslaved people joined Blackbeard and may have been part of his crew, but many didn't. We can only speculate as to race relations on board a pirate ship, but some have suggested that there may have been another system of social hierarchy at play. And as we're trying to parse that contradiction, trying to understand the pirate's stance, 
One theory that, you know, we don't know the answer, but one theory that fits the circumstances as we see it is it may have been that the pirates saw people of African descent who lived in, had been born in the Americas, who used the technology and the language of the day, could be treated as fellow humans, equal to anyone else. But people newly arriving from Africa who didn't maybe speak a common language were othered and treated as property. That the line may have been in the pirate's head, not so much racial, but foreignness, if you know what I mean, as opposed to that. La Concorde is taken to the remote island of Bikia in the Grenadines, where no French or British naval or military presence is to be seen. It's here Blackbeard oversees La Concorde's refit. He hands the enslaved Africans back to Captain Dossay, along with a small sloop, stripped of its guns, of course. The dejected Frenchman renames it Mauvaise Rencontre, the Bad Meeting. By December 10th, Dossay will eventually make port in Martinique, reporting his encounter with Blackbeard to the authorities. The French immediately raise the alarm in the region. But it's too late. By then, La Concorde's refit is complete. Blackbeard has moved on, and he's already conducted one of his most devastating attacks. The refurbished ship is also renamed Queen Anne's Revenge. The name is a satirical dig at the British monarch George I, who supplanted the royal house of Stuart and Queen Anne in 1714. This pirate warship is a terrifying presence on the waters. So now at the end of 1717, Blackbeard now has in his possession this frigate-sized flagship. He's able to arm it with upwards of 40 guns. It's 250 tons. It's least as large as most of the fifth and sixth-rate frigates that the Royal Navy had posted to defend the empire. And, you know, ditto for the French and the Dutch and the Danes and everyone else who had transatlantic empires here. The pirates had a vessel as big as the warships that they had to confront, and they had three times as many crewmen, which in a time when boarding actions were common was a critical advantage. With Queen Anne's Revenge and his two other ships, Blackbeard now possesses a powerful fleet and a crew of nearly 200. Steed Bonnet has been waiting for this moment. Now Blackbeard has his flagship. He can regain command of the Revenge, a pirate captain once more. They set sail north, skirting up the Lesser Antilles towards their next great conquest. It's a breezy night on November 28, 1717, off the coast of Guadeloupe Town, a French sugar colony in the Caribbean. A silver moon reflects off the calmly lapping waters. Blackbeard is eager to test the strength of the flotilla with Queen Anne's revenge at the forefront. This small town is unaware of what lurks out in the blackness. Blackbeard learned from interrogating Captain Dossay that Guadeloupe Town, the sister colony to Martinique, is just 75 miles away and weakly defended. It's ripe for the taking. The pirate fleet sails into the harbor. No time is wasted. They begin their assault, firing cannons at the docked ships. The anchored vessels are caught off guard one by one, the pirates incapacitate them. Blackbeard shouts, there. A large French ship laden with a cargo of sugar is trying to set off. 
The crew frantically try to escape before the pirates can take them. They cut the anchor and raise the sails, but they aren't quick enough. Blackbeard blocks them. The pirates storm the deck with cutlasses, pistols, and muskets. Blackbeard looks like the fury of hell to the passengers with his smoking beard and crazed eyes. The pirates pillage the valuables and spill whatever they don't take into the harbor. Blackbeard is elated by his victory, but he's not finished. His reputation has spread from his attacks along the eastern seaboard. Now, he wants to make a bigger statement. It's not just ships that should fear him. There's no safety on land either. Red-hot cannons fire at the settlement, blasting the wooden structures and igniting them. The town goes up in flames and smoke. From the deck of the Queen Anne's Revenge, Blackbeard watches the villagers scramble to battle the blazes. It's futile. Blackbeard's flotilla turns its back on the burning Guadeloupe town, and it disappears into the night. By morning, nearly half the town will lie in ashes. Blackbeard's power is now immense. Even in the Caribbean, after countless decades of piracy, rarely has any pirate been so feared. Queen Anne's revenge and his powerful flotilla have proven themselves. Blackbeard eyes a return to the eastern seaboard. He starts to think of new ways he could hurt the trade routes along the North American coast. Blackbeard's reign of terror is just beginning. Next week on Real Pirates. We continue to chart the phenomenal rise of Blackbeard the Pirate. Aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge and leading a growing pirate fleet, no port, ship or convoy is safe. From New England down to the Spanish Main, he leaves a path of destruction in his wake. But the political tides are changing. It turns out Blackbeard's career will peak just as the British Crown finally runs out of patience. The Pirate Wars are about to begin. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Bexon. Written by Luke Coons. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Thank you.